Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. I didn't understand how emotionally difficult it would be. At one point, I received a phone call about a year and a half ago, and it was from a shoe factory director. And they said, listen, there's this blonde French girl in here insisting that she's Tanya Heath, and she wants us to make this shoe. And we looked on internet, and she's clearly not you. That just, it floored me. It floored me because it's, it's beyond the product. It's sort of me, you know, people pretending to be, it, it just never in my wildest dreams occurred to me that people would do that. The Product Startup, episode 26. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked to Robson Splain. Robson is an industrial designer, and we talked about how he developed the pro rise seat assist and how he helps the elderly and wounded rise from their seats independently. So make sure to check out episode 25 if you want to hear more about how Robson prototypes his ideas and how he pitched investors and other companies. So thank you, everybody, for taking the time to leave a review on iTunes. It's really much appreciated. I use all the feedback that you guys send me to help improve the show. Today, I'm joined by Tanya Heath, who created a multi-height shoe with removable heels. One of the most interesting parts of the interview for me was that she was able to do this in Paris, where the idea of a convertible shoe is almost a sacrilege. And she even gets into how she sources manufacturing and production locally. So everything is made in France. So let's get started. Hi, Tanya. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks. So I really wanted to have you on the show because I think your product is interesting. Long time ago, I had a coworker that had this crazy idea to say, hey, wouldn't it be great if women could change out the heels for their shoes and go from you know day to evening? And you've done just that. So can you talk a little bit about your product and how it came to be? Well, first of all, I'd like to address what your coworker said. That's something I like because I find that our innovation is kind of at the level of urban myth. So since I've started working on this project, the number of women who've written to me and said, oh, I had that exact same idea is absolutely overwhelming. And I think that for me, that's actually reassuring because it makes me feel like maybe my innovation isn't to Star Trek. You know, maybe it's a bit more down to earth and maybe it addresses things that women feel and that they need and that they've thought about for a long time. And in terms of my own personal inspiration, it's probably no different than your coworkers. It's simply because I really love high heels. I like the way I look in them and I like I like being taller, quite frankly. Um, but I don't like the pain. I don't like the inconvenience and I don't like the reduced mobility. And then when I'm coming home late at night on a, on a metro, I, I don't like being leered at. So I, I just got angry with the footwear industry and started thinking, isn't there another way of, of thinking about the high heel and having a high heel that adapted to me instead of me having to carry around several pairs of shoes in my sack? 
you mentioned that a lot of people might have had this idea before. You know, what's interesting to me is that no one's has done it before you. And I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges involved with bringing a shoe like that out to market. You can't just put a taller heel on a shoe and make it interchangeable. Or at least that's what I thought. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on why maybe it hasn't hit the market before you? I think it's that that big piece of literature that you see about, you know, the difference between having a whole bunch of good ideas and actually executing them. So you've touched on several points that are, that are real. It was an engineering problem. So it wasn't just a design problem. So I think some people have tried and possibly not succeeded because they treated it as a design issue. Mm-hmm. We understood quite early on or, or initially right away that it was an engineering problem. And we had 14 different engineers working on this at at different stages in research and development. So it wasn't just a light engineering problem. It, it was a, you know, it, it was a pretty tough nut to crack. Then it became a design problem. So we actually had a proof of concept after two and a half years of research and development. But then to make the shoe really look like a classical shoe, that took another year and a half. Wow. There were a whole bunch of, of, of different challenges interposed one upon the other that, that made it that made it complex. So let's talk about maybe a couple of the challenges really quick. When you were creating some of these prototypes and you were presenting them, I assume that you had some testers that you were showing this to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had testers both from a marketing perspective and actually also wearing the shoes. So how did the feedback kind of change the direction that you're going with the shoe? Like, were there any misconceptions that you thought, hey, this is definitely what the consumers want? And it was kind of once you tested, it was completely the other way around. There was definitely one approach when we were still in research and development, which I wanted badly to work because it was relatively easy. Mm -hmm. And when I showed it to a panel of Parisian women, they were so... You know, underwhelmed wouldn't be the word. Downright negative and hostile to the appearance. <laughs> you know, so so yeah, that one got scrapped. At another point, we thought we'd actually got it. So we had a prototype that worked. People could walk around in it. They were really comfortable. And I took it home and I showed it to my children. And they were just watching TV and ab- absentmindedly playing with it. And they broke it. So it was one of those soul-searching moments you thought, you know, should you release something which you know your children can break or should you go back to the drawing board and, and keep working on it to make it more robust? So so certainly the feedback was coming from, you know, people I wasn't even asking like my kids and it could be on any aspect of the in- innovation. The, the aspects that I was particularly concerned with um, – were really visual. So aspects about appearance. Um, do you like the shoe? Because at the end of the day, you're selling a product. And then the other reason is the functional aspects of the product. We were pretty good at understanding those internally. You had a test panel that comprised of Parisian women. You're based out of Paris now, where you're always based out of Paris. Yes, I've been living in Paris for 20 years now. And I've been very involved in innovation in France for well, I guess 15 of those 20 years. So I used to work for different innovative companies. And I also taught innovation at one of the engineering schools here in Paris. Uh, so all of the women who I'd be in discussion with 
uh, on a first-hand basis would definitely be Parisian. But one of the things that's cool about innovating today is you can put things out on social media. So I always had my sort of closed group on Facebook because I started working on this in 2009. So it was pre-Snapchat and pre-Instagram and, and pre-other social networks. And I was able to get feedback from, from my entire network, be they in India or in Hong Kong or in Canada. Mm -hmm. And having that international input was very, very important for the product. And that's a really good point too. You know, I would think that Parisian women would be maybe the, like you said, the most critical of a design. You know, it would seem that fashion is just so important there. And when you come up with something that's so innovative or that changes the status quo in a way, you're going to get a lot of pushback. Did you experience any of that? Um, yeah, it was so awful that at some point I'd come home just in tears and I'd say to my kids or to my husband, I feel like I've just killed 200 baby seals, you know, the kind yeah. of reaction. Yeah. So, so yeah, that notion of being accepted in my home market probably wasn't just psychologically important. It was probably important for the future of this company because if a Parisian's going to spend the money and actually put the shoe on her foot, she has to love it. Mm -hmm, um, from mm -hmm. an aesthetic perspective and her criteria and her, her standards, I, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily, well, they might not be stronger, but she certainly might be more demanding sure. um, than women the world over. Also, Parisians walking. So the shoe had to be robust and she's looking good probably 18 hours a day. So it, it had to fit in that kind of lifestyle. So, so that was immensely important and it was very difficult. So I guess in a way it was a really good test bed for you. It was a tough test bed, but once you realized that you could succeed in it, everything else became maybe hopefully a little bit easier. Well, that's one thing that I'm grateful for because A, I already I knew that it would be the hardest test and B, imagine the reverse. And, you know, I love my Canadian friends, but they're very supportive. So the Canadian attitude towards innovation and towards an entrepreneur is to nurture them and to give them a lot of positive feedback. But I probably probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to iron out so quickly some of the things that people didn't like. And then, you know, because my friends are wonderful, they would have possibly worn ugly shoes for five years without saying anything. And it's nice to have that Parisian bluntness where they would just, you know, it's only now that my best friends have started wearing the shoes for the past two years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, they were like cute little project tenure. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So when you ask people these questions about your shoes or about the project that you were working on to get some of their feedback. How did you structure the questions to make sure that you weren't asking a leading question, that you weren't hearing what you wanted to hear? Okay. So that's interesting. I deliberately didn't structure the questions. The way we did our testing and our testing lasted for about nine months is we actually sold the shoes. So we sold every single pair of shoes. We didn't inform people that they were part of a test and the entire product team was in sales. So we were just constantly interacting with, with customers. If somebody didn't buy, we were asking a lot of questions about, was it the price? Was it the aesthetic? Was it the way it feels? Mm -hmm. um, and we continue this to this day. So in the Paris store, so all the other stores do have real salespeople, but in the Paris store, there are no salespeople. It's really the team and that presence and that connectivity with our client. It's allowed us to go far quite quickly. So that test period for me was vital. And we weren't just testing the product. We were also testing different channels. 
Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I know a lot of tech companies that have the similar approach where they ask their developers to sit on the customer service calls and they have to do a rotation X amount of time, you know, every week just to get the temperature of the customer every week and see if there's any changes that they need to make. Well, that conviction actually does come from my experience in tech companies. Mm. So in France, a tech company wouldn't do that because the tech companies I was with weren't even large enough to have a customer support line. But one of the things that I'd noticed in the previous three startups that I'd worked in as an employee is that the company was really too early stage to have a dedicated sales force and that it was probably better to have product development and market, um, what's it called? Marketing produit, um, product marketers selling the product just so they could hash out what exactly the client wanted. So I felt that since we were early stage, it was premature to have salespeople. Well, so it was really nice to have a store then to be able to test all this. Did you put up a lot of money in the beginning to get this going so you could have a storefront or were you basically selling out of a kiosk of some kind? So we were selling at that stage out of one of the large department stores in France. So this wouldn't be known in North America, but in France, a department store doesn't purchase your product. So um, how would I describe it? Consignment, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like a concession. Mm -hmm. So we had a concession in a department store, but not in Paris. And I didn't want it to be in Paris because I wanted to protect our, our reputation. Sure. And then, and then we also had two or three boutiques that were willing to try. So online boutiques and physical boutiques. That's really amazing that you're able to create those types of relationships. Did you start creating those relationships with people before you started creating the product or was it kind of something that happened in parallel? It happened in parallel because in France, we won quite a few innovation awards, um, some of them very high profile. So during the R&D stage of the company, I mean, in, in one respect, it was terrible because we were getting a lot of media attention before there was even a product. Mm -hmm. But the thing that was positive about it is we were getting a lot of media attention before there was a product. So we could start communicating with people who could help us move forward. And some of the boutiques, in fact, all of the boutiques uh, came to us because they were excited about the product um, due to the media coverage we were getting. <laughs> Sounds really exciting. Did you get any like negative coverage that you felt like, man, that didn't really portray us in the way that we wanted to? Coverage no, I did get heartbreaking comments. So I was in the finals for, I guess, the largest entrepreneurship award in, in France. It's called um, BFM Academy. And I lost the finals by two votes, wow. which was good because when I went in, I was given a 20% chance of winning. So it means I recovered myself to a certain extent during the finals. However, the final judge you know, he said what all French people were saying at that time, and I do want to be very clear, this was four years ago. Sure. He said, you know, the idea is, is, is great. Everything is perfect. You as a team, you know, your team is really strong. And he goes, too bad the shoes are ugly. Ouch. Yeah. And we've been working so hard to make them beautiful. I think the other thing which is misunderstood about us is the price point. So I get a bit of hate mail about the shoes costing a certain amount. But there's no real way of doing it in, in, a, in a cheaper version at the moment. So our shoes are made in France and we are using luxury leathers. And oh, actually, I just bought my own heel factory two months ago. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So that's going to be really good for the product. And it's going to be good for innovation, subsequent innovations, because I now have my own technical room. But all of this sort of we're, we're devoted to quality. We're devoted to craft, craftsmanship. Um, 
and we're devoted to ethical production. So for example, there's no cruelty leathers in my products. All of the leathers come from the food chain and they come from a French or a Dutch food chain. So, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of attention to the product that just makes the price what it is. So, you know, we're not like a tier one luxury company where the price is a marketing price. It really just is that price. And I think that that's currently, I'd say the criticism that possibly stings the most. We're not a made in China shoe coming from a death marched cow. You don't want to just be known as the manufacturer or, or the brand of shoes that you, where you can change the heel. You're also a brand that has a really quality product. It's, it's actually more than that. We're mm -hmm. a brand that would one day. So today I think it would be pretentious to say that we're a brand. So we're trying to become a brand mm -hmm. and eventually I'd like to become a fashion house. So the mission of Tanya Heath Paris is very clear, which is if we can b combine fashion with innovation or technology to make the life of of modern women simpler, we'll do it. And we're already looking at other products. That's really exciting. And so to touch on one of the points that you mentioned, the price I'm on your eShop now and uh, shoes range from 290 euro all the way up to boots that are at 700 euro. Mm -hmm. You know, by US standards, that's definitely a luxury shoe, but it's not anything that's in the stratosphere. So it would maybe be something that you could convince people to pay money for uh, once they were able to handle the shoe and see that it was really a high quality shoe. But it doesn't seem like it's completely out of the ballpark. Well, here's the economist in me coming out. So, you know, if, you, if I look at the proper relation, let's say of the, uh, of the United States, I'd say realistically, I'm only addressing two to five percent of the entire American sure. population. The rest simply can't afford it. And then within that two to 5%, yes, I definitely have arguments to convince my core two to 5%. I think where I'm perhaps sensitive is that when I began this project, I hadn't necessarily sought, or how would you say this? I hadn't decided to create a luxury product. It became a luxury product because of the reality of the product. I don't know if that's clear. Basically, I'm saying, you know, when I set out to do this back in 2009, you know, when I really started research and development, I had my mission statement. So that hasn't changed very much, but I'd never saw, I'd never set out to create a luxury company. The company has become a purveyor of luxury products because I think our commitment to quality um, and values is so strong that that's the only way we can make it. No, that's a really good explanation of that. You know, you won this award and you got some press from it and then you were able to test out your idea through some stores. And it, it sounds really straightforward. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, that was a challenge in itself. How were you able to then set up manufacturing? Ugh, that was equally gruesome. So, okay. It's funny going back to that time period because as you say it, you know, the award and the stores, that sounds easy, but in actual fact, so you've got the award and then you've got the stores and everything's going wrong. So you're trying to correct it and you're trying to figure out why it's going wrong on the product side. And then this obviously translates to the manufacturing side, but the manufacturing side might be worse because first of all, your volumes are low. Second of all, you've got this quirky techno shoe that nobody knows how to produce. Third of all, you have no reputation and you've never been funded, so you don't have very much money either. So, you know, the ability to, to convince people to work with you and to build a supply chain that can produce to your standards, that was 
sort of harrowing in itself. Yeah, I can only imagine. Did you approach some smaller manufacturers? You, did you always start out making the shoe in France and just approach maybe some smaller manufacturers, just more smaller artisans to maybe come up with your initial set? Okay, my it, that's exactly what I did initially, but very quickly I realized that artisans would be too small. So yes, then we were left with, you know, the manufacturers who were so desperate for business that they would take us. I'm looking for politically, I'm assuming no one will listen to this. So it took us a long time to get where we are today. So today we're with the best shoe manufacturer in France that does work for other brands. So they're the only shoe manufacturer left in the country that can do a luxury shoe um, for a third party. And on the heel side, you know, I, I, I just, I just really felt that the future of the company lay in our ability to control quality and research and development on the heel. So that's why we bought the factory this July. And that must have been a huge step. Can you maybe say how much you had going on in terms of sales? Was this a purchase that was easy for you? Or were you are you having to look maybe 10 years down the line to say, okay, hopefully that we can make this? So the the decision to make the purchase, if that's right. what the question was, I made it automatically. As soon as I heard they were for sale, um, my associate called me and he's like, should we buy this factory? And I was at the dentist uh, with my daughter. Uh, get, she was getting braces. And I remember just being bothered by the phone call and saying no. And then I thought about it and I called him back three seconds later and I was like, yes, we're going to buy that company. Um, one thing that shows how we've changed is when I was starting Tanya Heath Paris, you know, I couldn't raise money. We couldn't get a bank loan. You know, the company has being funded by love money and mostly mm -hmm. by me, you know, me and uh, a lot by me. Um, so we couldn't get money into the company, but there to buy the heel factory, our reputation's good enough that we've done the whole thing with debt. You know, that's really excellent. And it, were you able to also do that maybe because you had some collateral at this point, because the bank saw that you were purchasing physical assets with maybe property or... Certainly that, no, that mm -hmm. definitely helps. That definitely helps. I think what really helps, though, is that we've paid back our bank loans. Like, we always mm -hmm. have debt because I think it's healthy to progress mm -hmm. with debt. So we, we pay back our loans. I think that track record is good. And I think a lot of people who didn't back us financially, in fact, I know so, a lot of people have written me sort of letters saying they wish they'd, they had. Um, so I think the fact that we're still there and that we're selling uh, has been important in 2016. So we're going to do our closing at the end of August. So in two or three days, we'll probably break even or be a bit under this year due to considerable mm -hmm. investments. But the year before, we actually made a profit. Wow. Uh, and I, yeah, and I think that astonishes people. Yeah. And so while we're on that topic, how long did it take before you were able to draw anything from the company? I did four full years without any sales. Wow, that's really difficult. It was incredibly difficult. And you're still paying engineers in France. They're not cheap. And it's a physical product, so you're prototyping. Right. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. That's really difficult. At any point during that time, did you think that you weren't going to make it? Nope. That's funny that you say that because I think everybody that's had that really amazing success never really entertained the idea of failure. Well, the thing is, is I don't have a success yet. I, uh, you know, unless you define success by I'm still alive. <laughs> I guess I thought it would be hard. I think I was astonished by how difficult it would be. 
But if I project 30 or 40 years down the line, I have no doubt that we'll achieve our goal of becoming an, an internationally respected fashionist, which sounds insane. No, that's a huge goal, but it's something that you seem to be well on your way to achieving. As you're going through this process now, how are you able to manage some of this growth um, and kind of, you know, make sure that, like you said, you want to make sure that you keep some debt um, because it builds credit and because it helps you grow faster, I imagine. But how do you manage that growth so it's sustainable? Growth has been sufficiently organic that there's not been a huge challenge yet that we can't bite off. However, I'd hope that in the next five years, growth would be less organic. So I am looking for investment at this stage. That's very interesting too. So now that you're able to approach investors to say, hey, look, here's our track record. Here's what we've been able to do on a small amount of money. How do you feel that their response is going to be or have you already started doing this? We haven't started yet. Response in the past was so negative that you know, and I don't, I'm not the kind of person who believes in, in Santa Claus. So I'd rather start my business plan and see what the numbers look like myself. Mm -hmm. To be very honest and coming full circle to how you introduced the concept, it is a concept that's out there. So it's something that a lot of people have imagined and a lot of people have dreamed of. I'd say if I'm being frank with myself, I'm astonished that we haven't been funded Yet, I would have thought that it was such an obvious innovation that there would be somebody who would be interested in being part of it. Now, I remember seeing maybe a couple similar products at something like an airplane shopping catalog that you read in the front really? of your seat. So the only reason I'm bringing this up is because maybe people have this initial connotation of it going in that direction, like some, a product that's kind of like a fad or it's more interesting widget than piece of fashion. Okay, that's fascinating that you say that because one of my very good friends in Paris, one of my best friends, in fact, every time she saw me for three years, she'd be like, Tenya, how is your Inspector Gadget shoe going? <laughs> and, and, and I think that her insistence on the Inspector Gadget aspects of the product made me really determined to make sure that Tanya Heath Paris had nothing to do with Inspector Gadget. So we've deliberately been shying away from anything that would make us look like a flash in the pan, mm -hmm. fly away mm -hmm. gimmick. Yeah. And we're very strict about that. And I think once again, we can credit the French woman for that. Great strategy for sure. You want to separate yourself from that. Yeah. Also, I guess our, our attention to craftsmanship. I mean, very clearly, our shoes are produced in a leading luxury shoe supplier. Our heels, so the heel factory that I just bought, was the leading heel factory in the entire country. Wow. So it, it's not this crappy product that's made in some zone. It, it's truly not. You've got a broad assortment of different accessories or uh, you know, different heels and things like that. How did you go through the decision-making process to say, out of all these combinations, and there seems to be almost an infinite number of heel heights, widths, you know, whether it's a chunky or a thin heel, colors, finishes, whether it's matte or sparkly, high gloss, how did you even get down to, okay, here's the top, what looks like? couple dozen options. Okay. So from a shoe perspective, I have some basic 
design guidelines. So the shoe has to be able to take you seamlessly from any situation. So the way, I guess, the catch-all for that would be the shoe has to take you from day to night. Mm -hmm. And then within that, shoes fit into one of three categories. So the first category is power. Those would be professional shoes to take you from work and beyond. Mm -hmm. The second is liberty, and that would be very much Parisian casual chic. And then the third, third value of the company is seduction, and those are shoes that can take you to a restaurant or to a party or to a marriage. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the three values that we design around. And those would be the, the values of Tanya Heath Paris. Then in terms of heel heights, we won't go over nine or nine and a half centimeters in height because we know that if we do, we're inherently starting to really screw up women's health. We, we could break their arch or we could, you know, push them toward, towards a podiatrist. So, so we don't do it. And then in terms of colors and styles for those heels, we have colors that we keep all of the time. That's internally known as the Tanya Heath Paris rainbow. So those colors don't change too much. And then we have seasonal colors, which we change every six months. Um, and then in between that, we have successful colors. So there's a few colors that you'll see on the website, which are neither part of a seasonal collection nor part of the Tanya Heath Paris rainbow, but they just do with so well commercially that we always keep them. No, then that's really interesting. Did you, uh, and were you able to kind of narrow this down by talking to your, you know, target audience about this early on, or was it just something that you created of based on your, you know, your experience as a woman or your, um, your research into the market? No. So actually that idea of having colored heels came from one of our clients. So she called me one day and she's like, Tanya, you know, I love this shoe, but it is so boring and you are so boring. And she's like, why don't you do a pink heel? And I don't like pink. So I was like, let me test that. So we went out into our courtyard and we spray painted a black heel pink and we clicked it into a black shoe and it looked really great. And, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, I thought, wow, this is astonishing. It's a lot better than I thought it would be. And you know what? I'd wear that. So that's where that whole notion of colored heels came from. It came from a client. That's really interesting. As I look through all these options, I'm thinking that it's just a chore to kind of keep making sure that you're on the forefront of fashion and that your product doesn't look dated or that it doesn't look behind the trend. Do you have a way of making sure that you stay on top of the pulse of the customer in that way? Well, there, that's when you're suddenly very, very, very happy to be in Paris. Mm -hmm. So we go to trade fairs that are entirely trends-based. So for example, some of the trade fairs I go to, um, you're not allowed in with a camera and you're really seeing the way the industry projects everybody will be um, two years before everybody else sees mm -hmm. it. So we're highly aware of trends. What's still complex is that we have to choose one. So for my last trade fair, you know, they were presenting eight different directions that the industry may or may not move in. And you as a fashion brand, you have to decide, am I going to join one of those eight? If so, which one? And if I don't, what am I going to do? But this awareness of trends, I'd say, is inherent to being an actor in Paris. There's a lot of trends forecasters and there's a lot of trade fairs. And that's really difficult. You know, speaking from my experience, like you said, you have to just choose one trend. There's certainly trends that are really hot in one part of the world that don't translate to other parts of the world. 
So you can't just look at, at least for you know, the industry that I was in, we couldn't just look at to see what was happening on one part of the world and, and say, great, this is where we need to be a year from now, because that may or may not hit. For me, it's harder than mm. that. Because if you go to Institut Francaise de la Mode, and I had the privilege of going to a few courses because the French Federation of Shoes paid for my coursework. I, I don't have a diploma, but they let me audit a few classes. Um, they would say that a brand like my own should be an absolute articulation of the designer. But then you get into this kind of schizophrenia. If you see me from one perspective, I'm an international designer, you know, because I'm Canadian and I live in Paris. And I think it would be difficult to take the Canadian out of me. But then if you see it from another perspective, I'm a Parisian designer because I've lived in Paris for 20 years. The shoe is made in France. It features a lot of French craftsmanship and savoir-faire. And that schizophrenia, while it might be beneficial to the brand, is actually quite complex because it means from a stylistic perspective, we struggled from a long, for a long time to define whether we were going to design according to French aesthetics, traditional aesthetics, or according to international aesthetics. As the brand moves forward and we open up more stores internationally, and as I feel more comfortable in this space, we've made the decision to, to follow international standards. But then it's exactly the tension you just described. We will be going, you know, probably I, I'm going with the French Federation of Shoes to China at the end of um, the month. I have no idea what to expect there. I know that in my price point, they expect a lot more decoration. Will they like our shoe? I don't know. Are you talking about entering Asia as a new market? I'd love to enter Asia as a new market. So my comfort level is greatest with Singapore. I might have said Hong Kong a year ago. However, the retail space there isn't doing very well. And I'm not so comfortable with the relationship between Hong Kong and China. But Singapore seems to be very rules-based. It's got an Anglo-Saxon sort of backbone. And from what I can tell from my clients, so we have a lot of clients in banking, a lot of them are moving their headquarters to Singapore. So I think Singapore will will maintain stability and um, continue to be affluent. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, are you worried about IP at all whenever you take your product out of the country? It's the first concern. So I mean, I have a patent for China, mm -hmm. but that as any sort of patent lawyer would tell you, only gives you the the opportunity to fight. We already have very sick people around the world who've changed their name to Tanya Heath. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, to have so much, we, we have a lot of copy at the moment. We even have one in France. So to, ha to be copied so widely before you're even successful, you know, on the one hand, it's possibly flattering, but on the other hand, it, 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 it's... Um, it's annoying. I, we were talking about my my results for 2016. One of the things that I have done is I've increased spending on intellectual property. And I can imagine that would be a huge challenge, especially with fashion and design in general, like product design, industrial design. It's so difficult to keep a lid on that because it will go viral or something interesting will go, go throughout all of social media. And now you've just not, not only are you increasing sales, but you're also increasing the likelihood of somebody copying you. And now you have to be in so many markets at once to to protect it. It's immensely complex, which is why it's important to be a brand and why it's important for my quality to be impeccable. So, so far, for example, the copies that we've seen 
the quality is terrible. Yeah, I imagine it would be. I imagine the very first copy that is out there is probably someone that says, hey, they're selling this for, you know, two, 300 euro. We're going to sell it for 20. Yep. That's exactly what it is. And they're really crappy shoes. So is there anything that you can do to help to differentiate your, the true Tanya Heath brand from all the copycats? Physically, maybe in the box or in terms of packaging or in terms of marketing or, you know, some people will put a hologram sticker on the inside of a product. Is there anything that you found that maybe helps deter that? I don't know. We might be looking at some kind of combination with a wearable application where the client could activate it when she purchases. Mm -hmm. I I haven't thought about it too deeply. Mm -hmm. I'd go more in that direction if I have to. At the moment, just to give you a general answer... I've seen $20 copies of the Kelly bag where I can't even, I, I literally can't tell you that it's not a Hermes product. Mm. Wow. So copies of Tanya Heath Paris at the moment are crappy, but I don't underestimate a counterfeiter's ability to copy well. Right. To get, just get better at it. And then the other thing for me at the moment would be because I'm not a brand yet, you know, because Tanya Heath Paris isn't well known, I think it would just be easy to copy the concept. Once again, so on the other hand, my intellectual property is strong. So it's been tested a few times now and we've won every single time. Wow. Well, good, good. Congratulations for you for, for doing that. That's really difficult. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's, a, I mean, once again, that, that falls into the emotional category. I think one of the surprises from this company is I didn't, you know, back to those 200 seals, did I really kill them? I didn't understand how emotionally difficult it would be. When I, fe- at one point, I received a phone call about a year and a half ago. And it was from a shoe factory director in a part of the country or in in the part of the world that I won't name. And they said, listen, there's this blonde French girl in here insisting that she's Tanya Heath and she wants us to make this shoe. And we looked on internet and she's clearly not you. Wow. That just, it floored me. Wow. It floored me because it's, it's beyond the product. It's sort of me. Yeah. You know, people pretending to be, it, it just never in my wildest dreams occurred to me that people would do that. This is the first time I've ever heard of anybody doing that. Okay, well, there you go. It did not occur to me. Now you're spending all this money to have to uh, play whack-a-mole, so to speak. You know, there's this game in the U.S. that, that children can play where it's an automated arcade and the, the little... Uh, figure will pop up through the hole and you have to kind of hit them back down with a rubber mallet and the game gets more and more challenging as more of those little moles will come up through the hole and you can't keep up with it all because there's more that are popping up than you can hit at once. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of that. And it's also also just the pure shock. So, you know, if we're talking about flattery, to be very frank with you, I never felt flattered. It's my friends who are like, yeah, to be copied is is flattery. I've never felt the flattery part too clearly. While you're going through all this, what has helped you to kind of keep that positive mindset? And maybe if there were some some stumbles along the way that helped you kind of work past them. Okay. Number one, I don't think I do have a positive mindset, but I think I'm sort of, I've never been positive. So that would be something that would be true of me since the day I was born. So I think one of the things that helps me is that I have a realistic mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, So I might never be as negative as I should be, but I'm possibly not as positive as other people would be either. So I think that sort of realism has helped me. I think also I have 
kind of a strong support network. You know, my husband, when I started this, he said, I'll give you four years before I say anything. And he really did. He really did. He really left me alone for four years to tinker and to try. I think another thing that helps me is actually having kids. You know, when I walk through the door, you have to cook a meal. So it forces you to focus on something else. So it's kind of like a mini vacation every day. Um, and if I didn't have those children, knowing my character, I'd probably focus on, on the company, you know, 12 to 18 hours. And because I can't do that, it's, it's actually saved me. Just going home, doing stuff with the kids has given me a break. You know, that's interesting that you say that. My wife will get annoyed with me sometimes because I don't, I don't have very good work-life balance myself. And we have a young daughter now too. And I, I totally agree with you. I could definitely be one of those people that works 12 to 18 hours a day because there's always something to do. Yeah. And I think also, you know, with technology, one of the things that was fabulous this summer is I spent three days at my parents' cottage and it's so remote that we didn't even have a mobile network. So we're not even talking about, could I consult my emails? I couldn't place a phone call. And on a, on the one hand, it was like coming out of addiction. But on the other hand, I'm trying to maintain some of those principles. So I'm trying to be really black and white about when I'm working and being connected and not goofing around. Sure. But when I'm not working, really just not working. It's a hard, you know, for example, this morning, daughter's not feeling great. And so I'm running late to work, even though work is 25 feet away from where I sleep. Things just seem to add up. And in my mind, what I wanted to get done today is already a little bit behind than reality. <laughs> and, and you know what? That's how I looked at it for most of my career. It's only been in the past four or five years that I've realized that having those kids is a true vacation. It just takes your mind off of the constant stress of work and you have to make a small effort to be, you know, to be humane with them. Um, then also there's a question of age when the kids were, were younger, you know, when they were babies, it, it was maybe a little less interactive. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was possibly a bit more work. Um, now that they're older and they're reading philosophers and they're doing poetry and they're writing essays and they've got complex math equations that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that, that I can look over. It, it's more fun. I could definitely see some of that. You know, I wrestled with my daughter the other day for maybe 35 minutes and I didn't do anything. And it was nice to just kind of take that time out. Okay. So as you say that, I'm going to tickle my son <laughs> okay. who, who, by the way, is translating one of our contracts for us. Nice. In, indentured servitude. Get your uh, family to work for you for free. I'm going to give him five euros if they sign. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's actually, I'm telling him that I'm actually investing in him because I think this is the first time he's ever seen a legal contract. And I phoned the lawyers and the lawyer said if we could just give, because it's actually destined for somebody who doesn't speak English. So he's translating it into French. And I'm pretty impressed because he's in the intellectual property section and he's looking up the legal terms as he goes through. I like that you're involving your children in that because that's one of the goals that I have in my life is to pass on my work ethic and my drive and my, you know, my interest in, in business and having an imprint onto the world onto my children. How do you manage that with your family? I feel very strongly about that. So the French system is I, okay, I don't want to make too many assumptions about 
Texas, but the French system's grueling. So they've never strayed too far from a 1940s approach to education. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of technology in the schools. Mm -hmm. It's really about reading, writing, arithmetic, history, geography, uh, Latin, Greek. Um, my kids are in a special program, which I love, but it adds a lot more work. So they have the normal French program, and then they have additional hours of something that would be called Anglophone studies. And then they do the Chinese school program after all of that. Wow. So it adds, it adds a lot of linguistic work and cultural work. So even in the Chinese school program, they're learning about Chinese history and Chinese culture. It adds a lot of hours to their day. A difference in the French approach to learning is sport isn't really part of the curriculum. So they'll do one or two hours a week maximum, but then they'll go off skiing or they'll go off sailing for a week as a school. So they'll have little concentrations. But within that, there's not a lot of economics, there's not a lot of business, and there's very little actual hands-on learning. It's very theoretical learning. If you contrast that to North America, you know, in Canada at least, kids work in the summer, or they used to when I was a kid. I think now kids are working less everywhere. But when I was a kid, you'd have your summer jobs, and you'd learn a lot on the job. And I think for me as a child growing up, that was very valuable. So I try to involve my children now that they're older in as many aspects of the work as I can. I want to make it clear in their head that work isn't a four-letter word, I guess, even though it is. Right. And then from an academic perspective, uh, this sort of cultural balance is very important to me. So we're just getting back from Canada where everybody was at U University of Toronto um, doing different entrepreneurship classes or economics classes or business-related classes. Last year, they were doing build a robot or build a rocket. So that whole sort of creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship approach, I've tried to build it into their, um, what's it called, fun time. Sounds really fun for me. Going back, I would redo parts of my childhood now and focus more on uh, things that were innovative in that way. I was one of those kids that had a job before it was legal to have jobs under the table work, so to speak. But I wouldn't replace that experience for anything. I think it certainly made me a better person today. I completely agree with you. And I'm the same as you at a very basic level. It teaches you how to interact with adults. Absolutely. Yep. And I see so many 24-year-olds come through my door. Um, who work as interns here, who literally can't interact with adults. And it's because they've never been confronted with with a work situation. And they've got great degrees. Sure. So I, I think that that's something that's missing from the way we bring up our children now. And I want to make sure that my kids can at least have, have a conversation with an adult. Well, then that's a really good perspective on that. You know, as we wrap up the show, I, I wanted to ask you one last question can you give some advice to someone that's starting their own product-based business and they're just having a problem getting to that next stage? They're starting to doubt their product or their future. What would you tell them to say, hey, you know what, this is something that helped me or this is one way of getting it done? I've never been asked that question before. I shy away from universal advice because to me, a lot of it is difficult to transpose to different situations. I would say, you know, you have to accept, you have to expect to fail. Mm -hmm. um, and that hardship is part of the process. 
and that succeeding does have something to do with your conviction. So, for example, we were talking previously about supply chain. It was incredibly difficult to convince people to work with us, but I think it was my conviction that actually got the ball rolling. And I think at the end of the day, that's the one thing that the entrepreneur themselves can can control how convincing they are, how how much conviction they can convey. And then if I look at what happened this summer when we were purchasing the Hill Factory, you know, we weren't the only people positioned on the Hill Factory. I was up against other people who wanted to buy the same factory. And we actually had to present our business cases and our vision and our strategy at a French tribunal. And we won. And I think it's once again because because I was better able to to convey my conviction that we would succeed. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that sort of inner fire, even if it's not expressed in a positive way, even if you go home and cry for three days, even, yeah. you know, for me, for me, for three years, you probably couldn't talk to me socially about what I was doing because it was just so harrowing. Um, even if that's the case, I think there has to be some kind of fire. Very great advice. I think even though you said you don't like giving general advice, I think that was really good general advice. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much. So, Tanya, if someone wanted to buy a pair of shoes, where could they go and where could they find you if they wanted to find out more about you? Okay. So, to find out more about us, there's www.tanyaheath.com. So, that's T-A-N-Y-A. Heath, H-E-A-T-H, one word, dot com. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about us if you Google us. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, it would be contact at tanyaheath.com. Great. So thanks again for coming on the show, Tanya. We'll have all those links under the show notes. And you know, we wish you all the success that you deserve. You certainly had a crazy journey. And I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Definitely all the ups and downs. You have an amazing product, so I wish you all the best. Thanks very much, Philip. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've got any questions or comments, I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode 26. Join me next time as I speak with Brandon Adams, who invented the Arctic Stick during his college years. He pushed that product through concept, design, manufacturing, and funding, and that path led him to where he is today. Brandon established his business, Keys to the Crowd, a firm that consults with clients launching products and services on various crowdfunding platforms. So tune in next week to hear that episode. If you use Twitter, shoot me a message and let me know what you thought of today's episode and what you'd like to hear next. My handle is at Product Startup. So thanks again for joining me today, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.